We will begin in Acts chapter 12 today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, reading out of the King James Version for this sermon and also this series of sermons. Acts 12, 1 through 4, King James Version says this, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James the brother of John with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. Today I'd like to begin focusing on Passover, seeing that we're just a little over a month away from observing this holy day again. My favorite holy day of the year. They're all great. They're all good. Passover is my top one, at least in my life and my mind. I really enjoy it, take it very seriously. I believe it's good to gear our minds toward the Passover because it's such an important day and feast. It's good to gear our minds before it gets here and purify and sanctify mentally, emotionally, physically, and get ready for the first commanded annual feast of the new year that is approaching. Now, I've been observing Passover since 1998. That was my first one. Prior to that, I grew up celebrating Easter Sunday. And Easter in my home was not a time of hunting eggs or being visited by the Easter Bunny. My sister and I didn't get Easter baskets. Grandma and Granddaddy did get us Easter clothes, pastels. I remember I hated wearing them pastels. My sister loved it. But my parents didn't teach us those things. Easter for us was a special church day, the day that we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord. Christ died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15 says that's a big part of the gospel. And that was Easter in my mind as a child and even as a teenager. The most different thing that we did on Easter was take the Lord's Supper and we would focus on the resurrection accounts of Christ. And sometimes we'd have what is called a sunrise service on Easter Sunday morning. We'd get up early and we'd start a church meeting before the sun came up and we would celebrate the resurrection of the Lord as a church while the sun rose in the east. This was said to be in remembrance of Christ resurrecting early in the morning on the first day of the week. The picture on the screen is a sunrise service held on top of Stone Mountain, Georgia. They still do these every year. Well, each year at the same time, I would see Easter bunnies and I would see egg hunts and like today... I would see most churches advertise these. I do remember a few times going to a friend's house on Easter Sunday afternoon and looking for hidden eggs. It's the first time I'd ever done that. I was probably maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I soon found out about something called the prize egg. And the prize egg had money in it. So that was the egg I wanted to find. I did get that prize egg a couple times actually. I was very uh, excited about that as a young boy. When I first observed Passover in 1998, I began to wonder how did we get from Passover to Easter? Did Yeshua the Messiah observe Easter? Did his apostles observe Easter? How did we get from there 
to where we're at today. And I wondered about these things because if you read the Old Testament, you don't find a special holy day or holy time called Easter. And somebody will properly, rightly respond, well, that's because Jesus had not died and resurrected yet. That's a good response. But when we read the New Testament, I still find no special holy time called Easter Sunday. And you can't say that Yeshua had not died and resurrected because that's recorded for us at the end of each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then, through the book of Acts and the epistles in the New Testament, I can't find, still to this day, I can't find any apostle or anyone in the early apostolic assembly prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, I can't find any follower of the Messiah celebrating what we now know as Easter. Now, Easter is celebrated in the springtime. So when we look to springtime on the biblical calendar, we do find that an observance takes place among the people of Israel in the Old Testament known in English as the Passover and slash the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'd like to talk a bit about that from the Old Testament. Passover originated in Egypt with the deliverance of the children of Israel from harsh slavery. In Exodus 1, the Israelites began to be enslaved by the Egyptians due to the Egyptians being afraid that the Israelites would outnumber them and overpower them. Remember, in the days of Joseph, there was peace between the Egyptians and the descendants of Jacob slash Israel. But when a king rose up in Egypt that wasn't aware, did not know all of what Joseph had done, they began to say, hey, these Israelites multiply quick, they multiply fast, and they multiply a lot. And they're going to get to a number where they will overtake us as a people. And so during this time when the king decided that, hey, this isn't a good situation that we have here with the Israelites... He implemented harsh slavery and made an edict in Egypt that any son that was born to a Hebrew family would be killed by throwing the baby into the Nile River. They were to let the daughters, the Hebrew daughters, stay alive. But the little baby Hebrew boys, they were to throw into the Nile River. We then read in Exodus 2 of a Hebrew family from the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob Israel's sons, direct sons, this Hebrew family had a baby boy that they kept secret. And the mother in the family hides her son for three months, but then puts him in a basket, coats the basket with pitch, and places it into the river. The basket floats, and the baby boy ends up being found and raised in an Egyptian home. His name is called Moshe. The Egyptian princess who found him knew that he was a Hebrew baby. Probably, the Bible doesn't tell us. Some other historical books tell us that it was likely because the little boy was circumcised. And in Hebrew, the word Moshe means to draw out. In this case, to draw out from the water. We call it Moses because of Greek influence, but nobody called him Moses in the Bible. His name was Moshe. Moshe, last Moses, grows up in Egyptian in practice, but later he flees the land of Egypt. 
And he's called by the Almighty to go back down into Egypt later on and speak on Yahweh's stead or Yahweh's behalf. And he would tell Pharaoh on Yahweh's behalf, let my people go. It's a beautiful story, one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible. Pharaoh does not let Yahweh's people go, the children of Israel. And Yahweh sends a series of ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. And this leads up to one final plague upon Egypt, and that is the death of the firstborn son. We read about this in Exodus 11, verses 4 through 5, where it says, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. And Moses said, Thus saith Yahweh, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. So we see there's no respecter of persons in this plague, from the lowest class to the most upper class, and even in regards to the animals. When we keep reading from Exodus 11 into Exodus 12, we see an entire, what we call chapter or section in the book of Exodus that is centered around on a feast that focuses on this final plague. And the feast is called in English Passover, or in Hebrew, Pesach. And the word Pesach means an exemption, a sparing, or an immunity. It comes from the root word Pasach, meaning to hop over or to skip over. We see both of these words in what's called a word play or a Hebrew word pun in Exodus 12, 26 through 27. Most of the time you can't see these in English, but in this case you can. A lot of times these Hebrew word puns can only be seen in Hebrew and not in the English translation. But in this case we see it in English. Exodus 12, 26 through 27 says... And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. That's the word Pesach. Who passed over, Pesach, the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. So the first Passover there in verse 27 is the word Pesach. The second, past, is the word Pesach. So the Hebrew word pun says, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Pesach who Pesached over the houses. So the idea is that through observing the ordinance of Pesach, the Israelites could save, spare, or exempt their firstborn son from the final plague. Yahweh would skip over the houses that had on the doorpost and the lintel the blood of the lamb that they had sacrificed previously that day. That house would be passed over, Pasach. Thus the English compound word, Passover. A little brief tidbit here that I'll get into in a later sermon this month. But no one used the compound word Passover to refer to this day until the 1500s when a man by the name of William Tyndale who translated the New Testament into English and some parts of the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses. He used the compound word Passover 
as an English translation of the Hebrew word Pesach. Nobody called it the Passover until William Tyndale coined that term in the early 1500s. William Tyndale was an extremely bright Christian man. He spoke eight languages fluently. The Passover instructions centered around a year-old male lamb that was slaughtered, roasted whole, and then eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The Passover meal was the beginning of a seven-day festival, the festival of unleavened bread, and each succeeding feast in the years that came would memorialize the very first Passover. And we still do that today, every year. We keep the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a memorial of what took place at the time period of Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites left Egypt in a hurry because when the firstborns all across the land of Egypt died, there was a great cry that went through the land of Egypt. And they thrust the Israelites out. They had to leave in a hurry, which means that they had to make quick flatbread, which is not a long process, instead of a raised loaf of bread, which still to this day, even with a bread machine, is a lot longer of a process than making quick flat bread. Back then, it would even have been a lengthier process to make a raised loaf of bread. And so you see the unleavened bread, the meaning in the unleavened bread, the quick, the leaving in haste out of the land of Egypt, the eating of the unleavened bread. When we do that, it brings that first Passover back to our remembrance. It's a memorial. And I think the bitter herbs that were eaten were indicative of the bitter life that the Israelites had to endure while they lived in the land of Egypt under the slavery. Now, fast forward from there about 1,500 years into the future to the time of Yeshua of Nazareth, our Messiah, that we claim as our Savior, our teacher, and our example. Christians call themselves disciples of Jesus And the word disciple means a student or a learner. In other words, a disciple of Yeshua is supposed to watch Yeshua, listen to Yeshua, and then seek to imitate Him. Well, in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 40 through 42, we read the following. It says this, And the child grew, this is talking about Yeshua of Nazareth, whose mother was Mary or Miriam, and whose legal father the one that raised him and taught him carpentry, was Yosef, or we say Joseph. So this child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of the Almighty was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. I'm afraid sometimes when we read the New Testament and we hear sermons, we think that Yeshua just all of a sudden came on the scene as a grown man. But no, he was born. He was raised. He probably fell and hurt his knee. and His mom had to take care of him. And he cried and he nursed. And his diaper had to be changed, you know. He grew up. He did not begin his ministry until about 30 years of age. So Yeshua was born at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. We read of the birth account. And here at the end of Luke chapter 2, towards the end, we see him at 12 years of age. This is the only biblical account that we have of his childhood minus his birth. So he's traveling with his parents to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And at that time, it was the designated focal point for the feast. Jerusalem was the designated focal point of the feast days for many, many years. It wasn't the only one. Before Jerusalem, he had a place 
named Shiloh in the days of the judges and prophet Samuel, that the Israelites would celebrate the feast. And then Yeshua prophesied of a time in John chapter 4 when people would worship the Father neither in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. But the true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth, meaning at whatever location they were at. But at this time, Jerusalem, and for many years, Jerusalem was the focal point for the feast. Now, if his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover every year, as we read in Luke 2, that would mean that Yeshua had been observing Passover as a child since his birth. He was there since he was a little baby. Kind of like my son David right there, or, or all of my children that have always observed Passover. Now, this is a 12-year-old Yeshua. Now, fast forward from here to, at 12 years old to his early 30s, another 18 years. According to Luke 3.23, Yeshua was about 30 years old when he began his ministerial work, his mission, after he was baptized by Yohanan or John the baptizer. In his 30s, just before his death, right here in the book of Luke, the same book that we read just a second ago, Luke 22 verse 1 the author says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. The entire feast from the sacrifice of the Passover lamb until the end of the days of unleavened bread was sometimes referred to by shorthand as the Passover. That doesn't mean every time you see the word Passover, it means the whole feast. It's just that sometimes you could refer to the whole feast as Passover. You see this also in the Old Testament. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 45, verse 21. So, in Luke 22, verse 1, Passover is drawing near. And if you keep reading in the verse 8, Yeshua says to Peter and John, his disciples, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Now, there's a huge debate about whether or not Yeshua actually ate the Passover the year of his death. I am of the belief, personally, that he did not eat it that year. But that's not the focus of this lesson or this series. What I'm showing is that at the end of Yeshua's earthly life, right before he was sacrificed or crucified on the torture stake, the Passover is still being observed. 1,500 years approximately after the time of the exodus from Egypt. Now, next I'd like to mention a point that is after the resurrection and the ascension of Yeshua to heaven. And that's Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 5, where he is dealing with removing an unrepentant sinner from the congregation. Church discipline, excommunications going on in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, in Paul's instruction to the church, he uses the Passover as an illustration to kind of bring his point home to the congregation in his letter. Remember that Paul, or his Hebrew name, Shaul, Saul of Tarsus, they would have called him Shaul, Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew, okay? And he grew up doing Hebrew things. Paul, Shaul grew up celebrating the feast days. And so during Passover, the leavened bread was removed from the homes of the people who observed the feast to Yahweh. It was a feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was eaten all seven days of the feast, including the first meal, the Passover meal of the feast. And the leavened bread was removed from the home. So you weren't eating any raised loaves. You were eating the quick flat bread all week long. Remember that this was done in order to recollect the exodus 
the leaving in a hurry from the land of Egypt, making the quick bread instead of the bread that takes more time. No leavened bread was to be eaten. And you'll find in Exodus 12, verse 15, and verses 19 through 20, that the leavened bread was removed from the living quarters of the Israelites. So, Paul takes the practice, the established Hebraic practice, of removing leaven from one's home, and he uses that as an allegory into removing unrepentant sin from a congregation before it spreads and permeates through the church. Paul is saying this. There's a man that's called a brother in the congregation at Corinth. And he is involved in unrepentant sin. In other words, he's not willing to stop his sin. He's been confronted. He's been visited in private. We've taken two or more witnesses. We've brought him before the church, like Matthew 18 says and commands, our Lord says. But he's unrepentant. He refuses to repent. And Paul is saying, get the man out of the church. Excommunicate the man. Have no fellowship with the man any longer. Hand him over to Satan that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. It's not that they didn't love the man, but the removing him from the assembly was a loving act because it was in hopes that he would see he was far away from the congregation, which meant he was far away from Yahweh. And there's a process. It's not like we just start pointing fingers and start chunking people out of the church. I preached a four-part series on excommunication and how that there's a process that if you see someone that is involved in unrepentant sin, they're not repentant about it, and you know it for a fact, the very first thing that you do is go to them in private. And you try to counsel them and help them to repent in private without anybody else knowing. And the Bible says that sometimes your brother or sister will listen to you in private and you've gained them back to the congregation. But then if they don't listen to that, then you go to them again in private, but you take at least two witnesses with you. And then you're still hoping that they come back to the congregation, that they repent of their sin. So there's a process. You don't just start throwing people out of the church. There's a process that we have to go by. Yahweh is a mighty one of decency and order. Amen? Right? He's not a mighty one of chaos. He's a mighty one of order. So Paul is dealing with this excommunicated man here, or a man that should be excommunicated. And he's saying, this guy's unrepentant sin is like leaven. Now that doesn't mean that leaven every time in the Bible means sin. But Paul is using it. It's a midrash. It's a... It's an interpretation, an allegorical interpretation that Paul is pulling from an illustration from Passover. This man's unrepentant sin is like leaven. And just as we remove the leaven, the sin needs to be removed. In writing this, Paul says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, we know that Yeshua is not a literal lamb. That's because everything in the Bible is not to be taken literally. Some things are literal. Some things are spiritual and metaphorical and allegorical. So Yeshua is not a literal lamb, but he's a type of the Passover lamb. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So if Yeshua, the sacrificed Passover lamb, spiritually, has already been put to death, and of course he resurrected, then that means the leaven ought to be removed. Because what do you do after you sacrifice the Passover lamb? 
the leaven is put out of the home. Keeping the literal feast loses its significance if we're not really interested in keeping the spiritual feast. If we're not interested in lives of holiness and separation from sin, then what in the world are we doing trying to keep the literal feast? It becomes very pharisaical. It becomes very uh, legalistic in the Old Testament sense, like in Isaiah 1 where people try to appear before Yahweh on His holy days and act like they can live any way that they want to and then come before Yahweh and bring a sacrifice. So Paul is getting on to them for this because the Christian life is a life of penitence and repentance and constant examination of ourselves which leads to removal of sin as we learn and grow. We constantly should examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And I believe a righteous Christian man or woman will do that. A person that does no examination or never has any doubts, I doubt that they're really being dealt with by the Heavenly Father. So Paul says, excommunicate the unrepentant sinner from the fellowship. Get the leaven out. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Now this is my point. Paul uses Passover as a teaching illustration and it was at Passover time that he wrote this to the Corinthian church. Because at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16 verse 8, Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. What is Pentecost? The second commanded annual festival on Yahweh's timetable. Now that implies, I believe, that he is writing before Pentecost. And it makes perfect sense that in writing during Passover time or when the Corinthians received the letter and they read it during Passover time, it makes sense that Paul would use a Passover illustration to prove the point about excommunicating the unrepentant sinner. Now that would make no sense if they didn't celebrate Passover or observe Passover in some capacity. You see what I'm saying? If the Corinthian church didn't observe Passover at all, then Paul's use of the illustration wouldn't make any sense to the Corinthians. I believe it made perfect sense because I believe that all Christians, both Jew and Gentile, in the first century, at least up until A.D. 70, observed the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, why in the world does Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, the verses that we started off with, use the word Easter? The word is there in the King James Version of the Bible. This is the only modern version that the word Easter is in. Because if you have like a New King James Version, a New American Standard Bible, a New International Version, or a Revised Standard Version, or even a 1560 Geneva Bible, a Bible that was very popular and came before the 1611 King James Version. The 1560 Geneva Bible was the most popular of the Geneva editions, and it was the Bible that was used by the pilgrims that sailed over here on the Mayflower to what they called the New World. They actually didn't like the King James Version. Um, they believed it was too high church. It was like a government translation of the Bible. I'm not knocking the King James Version. I believe it's an excellent translation. It's great literature. But the pilgrims didn't like it. They used the Geneva Bible. And in all of those Bibles that I just mentioned, Acts 12 verse 4 reads, Passover instead of Easter. The King James Version is the only modern translation to use the word Easter. Why did the King James Bible translators, who were very studious, scholarly men, 
Why did they use the word Easter in Acts chapter 12, verse 4? Well, I hope to answer that question and deal with further material in next week's lesson. I'm going to close this lesson. <laughs> Got to keep you coming back. Keep you coming back, right? I will close this lesson with something that will wet your whistle. And I will close this lesson with something that will get your mind stirring for next week. I promise you it will. For the last 20 years, I have told several people that I believe Easter is a mistranslation in the King James Version. I recently had a discussion with my son-in-law about this a few weeks ago, about Acts 12 verse 4. However, because of some information that is new to me, the information has been there, but it's new to Brother Matthew. Some information that I've seen in just the last two weeks in preparing for these sermons. I no longer believe that Easter is a mistranslation or a bad translation in the King James Version of Acts 12, verse 4. <laughs> I believe it is a correct translation from the Greek. I believe that there is scholarly reason for the King James Bible translators to use Easter here. I told you I would get your mind stirring. Now, all I ask you to do is to listen to me before you jump to conclusions. Barney Fife tells Andy, I hate it when you jump to conclusions. Proverbs 18, verse 13 in the King James Bible says this, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Amen? Now, if you disagree with me when I'm finished with these sermons, that's fine. I'll still love you. I couldn't see what I'm going to show you for the last 20 years. I couldn't see it. So I will be patient with you just as Yahweh has been patient with me. I feel like Yahweh has been telling me over the last two weeks, Matthew, do not ever stop studying the Bible. That is something that we all should take heed to. Never think that you have arrived at perfection. Constantly examine your life, examine your doctrine, and continue to study the Bible till the day that you die. Now, I began studying for this series in hopes of bringing something fresh. I prayed to Yahweh. I can't remember my exact words. I should have wrote them down. But I prayed to Yahweh before I started studying this series. And I said, Yahweh, I want to bless the congregation with something fresh. So I'm not going to go into my old study notes. I'm going to start from scratch like I'm just starting to study Passover. And I'm going to present this to the congregation and I can guarantee you that the material that we'll cover over the next few weeks will be fresh material. <laughs> I promise you that. Now, I'm certain that this fresh material will upset some people in the Messianic, Hebrew roots, and Torah-keeping movement. I know it will. But frankly, I don't care. I'm not saying that to be ugly or disrespectful to anybody. Let me explain that statement a little bit more. I don't upset people for the sake of upsetting people. I never preach a sermon because I think, well, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so needs this sermon, so I'm going to preach it. I never do that. I study the Bible and I preach. And if, if something that I preach, now, and this goes not just for me, but any true minister of Yahweh, if you're in a congregation and you listen to a minister of Yahweh preach a sermon and it hits you, the odds are you need to hear it. That's what the odds are, right? Brother TJ said last week in his 
Ephesians sermon on the new moon. He said, if I step on your toes, put them back under the pew so they won't get stepped on too much. <laughs> and he did step on my toes a little bit, Brother TJ. Had a hard time sleeping that night. No, I'm teasing. I like my toes to be stepped on, actually. I like to be challenged. I like to hear something I've never heard before. And I like to be a Berean. Acts 17, 10 through 11, they received the word with great readiness of mind and examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that were being told to them were true. So I don't upset people for the sake of upsetting people. I'm a man of shalom. I'm a man of peace. I like peace. I like unity in as much as it can be had. I don't believe in purposely provoking people to anger. I'm not here to purposely provoke anybody to anger. Anybody here, anybody that may hear me. But I am not interested in being confined to any one box or one denomination. I'm not that. People that have met me before say, Brother Matthew, there's not very many people like you because there's some things that I believe that are what the Lutherans believe. There's some things I believe that are what the Pentecostals believe. There's some things I believe that are what the Baptists believe. There's some things I believe that are what the Catholics believe. I believe some doctrines that the Catholics believe. The virgin birth, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the death of Christ. I believe in the resurrection of Christ. Okay, You cannot make a full sweep over a denomination and say everything that they believe has to be wrong because they get one or two things or 12 things wrong. I am not a preacher that's confined to one box or one denomination. It does not matter to me if in one sermon I upset a Baptist. It doesn't matter to me if in the next sermon I upset a Pentecostal. And it doesn't matter to me if in the next sermon I upset someone in the Torah-keeping movement. I'm not up here preaching out of peer pressure, and I don't believe certain things in order to please certain people. I study the Bible, and I believe what I see to be the truth in order to please the Heavenly Father. And I hope that's what everybody else in here does. You know, I had a thought not long ago that I don't want my children to grow up and believe like me. I want my children to grow up and believe Holy Scripture. And if they grow up and they see that Daddy, their beloved Daddy, had a blind spot, I do not want them following Daddy. I want them following Yahweh. Are you with me on that? Do you catch that? That's a humbling thing to say. That's a humbling thing to say. My pride would want me to say, no, Daddy's right on everything. Y'all need to follow Daddy. But no, I have to humble myself. So I'm thankful that we can continue to study and grow in understanding and come to greater spiritual maturity as the Father leads us. I repented for my false understanding on this this past week. And I'm going to talk more about it next week. So I'm going to end in prayer today and I'm going to keep you wondering what I'm going to say next week. And you'll have to wait till next week. Don't try to pull it out of me after the sermon. <laughs> Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you. I praise you. You're good and you are great. You are wonderful. There is no one like you, Father Yahweh, in heaven above or on the earth below. I praise you. I honor you. I give you glory. You're magnificent. Father, thank you for dealing with us humans patiently. Thank you for being patient with me.
Father, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for the errors that I'm not aware of. And help me to see any truth that I need to see. I love you, Yahweh. I love you so much. It's through your Son, I pray. Amen.